0: I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah 64. Isaiah chapter 64. And I want to read in your hearing the opening words of verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Let's pray. Father, we once again confess our need of you our dependence upon you that you would grant us light and you would grant us understanding we pray that as we look into the scriptures we might know something of the reality that the disciples on the road to Emmaus knew when Jesus taught them from the word and showed them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself That, Father, we would see Jesus in the scriptures. We would see the things concerning the one who loved us, who died for us, who rose again, who is enthroned in glory at your right hand, the one who forever makes intercession for us. Be with your word as it's preached from the pulpits of our land. Be with all who stand in the name of Jesus to speak forth the unsearchable riches of Christ. Be with us here as we meet this morning in this building. Be with our brother Mike as he ministers your word to the nursing home later. We pray that the preaching of the gospel will bear fruit to your glory as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be back home. The past three weeks in Catskill, they've been a wonderful experience. Open time a blessing to the church. But for me, the best part is coming back home. Nothing can take the place of being at the regular place of ministry amongst people I've known for so many years. People that I love and, and people who continue to bear with me. So it's good to see you this morning. In the last few weeks when I was in Catskill, I ministered largely from the book of Isaiah. I gave those who were in the Sunday school class this morning a little bit of a taste some of the places we were in, in the book of Isaiah. It's my purpose this morning to once again uh, address matters pertaining to Isaiah, particularly this prayer of Isaiah, "Oh that you would rend the heavens and come down. The book of Isaiah is a book beloved by Christians, beloved uh, for many reasons but I think chief among them is the fact that Isaiah speaks so much of the Messiah, speaks so much of, of Christ. We have that perception that uh, we have these great Messianic prophecies. It's a true perception. And often Isaiah's is turned to it. The Christmas season in celebration of the reality of Christ's coming. Uh, often preachers turn to Isaiah. You hear Hannah's Messiah. You're confronted with the prophecies of Isaiah. You know, we don't love the book of Isaiah because Isaiah writes about Syrians or Assyrians, or Babylonians, or Persian emperors. Those were the things that were part of Isaiah's world, not ours. And oftentimes we read Scripture more often than not with an eye to us, our concerns, our world of ideas, with meager interest in the world of the Bible and of the biblical writers. And I think we err in doing that. We tend to read a passage like this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We think of ourselves, our need for the presence of God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down this morning, Lord, as we meet and worship in Pinebush. Bless us as we come before you and seek you. or, Lord you would rend the heavens and come down because I'm having this evangelistic opportunity, this opportunity to speak to someone about the gospel, and I need wisdom in this encounter with an unbeliever, or, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down with the flames and fires of revival and flood the world with the truth of the gospel. Now well, none of these are bad prayers, and all of them are to be prayed in their own context. But sometimes we use it. Oh, that you would run the heavens and come down so I could pass the test I never studied for. <laughs> Got a guy in, in school. That's what he did. You'd wonder why he zeroed out on that test and he'd say, I never studied. Why didn't you study? I prayed that God would help me to pass. Well, I tell you, if you pray for the pass of the test, you should study that God would bless your efforts to study in the passing of that That test, but you see, we oftentimes misuse the scriptures, and oftentimes we are concerned that the scriptures would address our interests, our concerns. Isaiah had his own concerns when he prayed the words of this prayer, and it's my concern this morning to address his concerns and to address it in terms of the prayer itself, secondly, God's answer to the prayer. And finally, our appropriation of the prayer. Let's look first at the prayer itself, Isaiah's prayer. What is he praying for? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and you would come down. Well, in essence, he's praying for an invasion of heaven into this earth. Again, the whole question of what he prayed for and what he was concerned about in the previous chapter is that God seemed to be absent In the affairs of the earth, that God was in the heavens, he was dwelling in his own infinite blessedness, looking upon the condition of his people, and we don't see his presence any longer. We don't see the manifestations of his presence as former generations did. Where are you, Lord? It says in verse 15 of chapter 63 Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Lord, see our plight. See our condition. See our circumstances. Take note, like you did of old. Like you did when you remembered your covenant with Abraham. and You saw the afflictions of your people in Egypt. You came down. It wasn't just some special manifestation of God's presence that's in normal seasons. Nothing like that ever happened before that a God would come down and meet with a man at a burning bush that God would come down and bring ten plagues upon the Egyptians that God would come down and open up a sea so that his people would pass through on dry land and then bring that sea to be crashing down once again upon the armies of Pharaoh never seen before that a God would come down on Mount Sinai in the midst of the fires and the flames and the thunder and the lightning as he did. That's what he's praying for. He's praying for theophany. Nothing less than that. Nothing less than an invasion of heaven to the earth. Where did he get the idea to pray such a thing? Well, I got a little bit ahead of myself. Of course, he got it from the Exodus. He got it from the history. He got it from the fact that God had done something quite like that once before. And you see, there's a sense in which prayer, if we understand biblical prayer rightly, we will understand that it's part, our part, of an ongoing conversation that God himself began. When we pray, we enter into a conversation God began with his people long ago. In which our prayers are framed by the reality of his own promises. Our prayers are framed by the reality of the things that God has said. And that God has done in his mighty works on behalf of his people. God speaks his word through his prophets. He speaks in visions. He speaks in dreams. And he speaks in his mighty works of his grace and of his power. And it's his words and his works that began a conversation with his church long ago in which that conversation continues as we respond to his speaking. Isaiah understood that. And Isaiah praised this prayer that you would rend the heavens and come down for two reasons. Number one, because God again had done this very thing once before at the exodus of his enslaved people in Egypt. God had rent the heavens. God had come down. He had delivered the people from their bondage. He had rescued them from their servitude. He freed them. He brought them to himself as on eagles' wings. And he entered into covenant with them. He manifests his presence and power. And he manifest his presence... By leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The point of it is God had already rent the heavens and he had come down. But there's a second thing to the reason Isaiah prayed such a thing. He not only prayed it because God had done it once before. And I guess if God has done something once before and he's the unchanging God, you might have... Concluded, Lord, you can at least do it again. But it's not just a question of whether or not he could. It's the question that he promised to do it again. That's the point. He promised that he would do it again. The word that the prophets received from God was that the return to the land of the people who were led into captivity in the Babylonian exile Would not just be the normal kind of thing you see every day. Wouldn't just be a migrant people moving from one place to another or an exiled people, a bunch of refugees being moved around from this place to that uh, because of some United Nations decree or some other thing that caused something to come about. No. God had said the return of his people to the land would be that he himself would come and he himself would come like unto the way he did it before in Egypt and that this return to the land or this event in Israel's future that would make all things that were dark and dismal and depressing and devastating to become bright and light and filled with divine presence and glory is that God would bring about a second exodus. Nothing less than a second exodus would be his coming invasion of his own presence to once again come against not the empire of Egypt and its pharaoh, but the empire of Babylon. Well, actually the Persians were the ones that took care of the Babylonians, but God would take care of his enemies and his people's enemies in a second exodus that is portrayed. Look, if you will, with me in the book of Jeremiah, there's a couple of these passages I'm only going to read one there's one in chapter 23 verses 7 and 8 but for the sake of time I'm just going to read chapter 16 chapter 16 and again, Jeremiah was the prophet to the exiled people, he lived when Babylon came with its armies and took the Jews away took the people of Israel away and he was preparing the people, the exiled people who would be sent away into Babylon and one of the ways that he brought encouragement to the real, to, in the midst of this devastating reality of covenant curse, of covenant judgment, of famine, sword, and death, and exile that would be brought upon the people is that he spoke of a more distant future. He spoke of another reality that was to come. He spoke of a promise of what God would do that would change the equation radically. It would change things so radically that God himself would be conceived in a completely different way than they formerly conceived of him. Look at what the words say. Verse 14. Jeremiah 16, 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no longer be said. Now why does he say it will no longer be said? Well, because at this point, this is what we say. This is what we say. When we want to refer to the God of Israel, when we want to refer to His mighty works, when we want to refer to His goodness to His people, Israel, we will say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That's who God is. God is that God who rescued us in our distress, who saved us from servitude to Pharaoh in Egypt and brought us out with a high hand and with mighty power. That's who God is. He's the Lord who lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Just as you and I would say, He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God who came and judged our sins at the cross and raised His Son from the dead and now sits enthroned, who sits enthroned in majesty at the right hand of the Father. As we would express who God is in terms of Christian salvation, so the Jews would refer to God in terms of Israel's salvation. It was a salvation from servitude and slavery to a hostile power, the empire of Egypt. And now we're in that situation once again. It's not Egypt any longer, it's Babylon. God, through His prophet Jeremiah, says the days are coming when no longer is God going to be defined in terms of that first exodus, but God's going to be defined by another exodus entirely. And so He says the days are coming, when it no longer is to be said as the Lord who, who as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where He had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. God says is coming another exodus, another salvation another redemption another act of God's mighty power that will affect his people for the good you see the context in the passage in Jeremiah where God says he's going to hurl them into a foreign land well that God who hurled them from the land of Israel and Hurl them into Babylon, is not going to bring them back in a way of deliverance that would so surpass the former deliverance that you're not going to talk about exodus from Egypt any longer. What kind of deliverance would that be? If you're going to forget all about that first exodus with burning bushes and plagues and open seas... And divine presence on mountains and lightning and thunder an audible voice from heaven a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire God coming in the midst of the camp and dwelling in the tabernacle built as a place of meeting and a place for his presence I mean you had all that dynamics, that fireworks that, what could ever beat that? good question what could beat that? Isaiah prays that the promised better than that will come. That the promised better than that would be received. That God wouldn't simply remain in a passive posture in heaven, looking and beholding the present scene from afar. But he would do what he did long ago, and in fulfillment of his own word of promise, spring the long-awaited, long-expected fulfillment in a second exodus, so that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake like it did at Sinai, that your presence bring about, Lord, this new, bring about this greater deliverance. That's the prayer. That's the prayer. How did it get answered, folks? How did this prayer of Isaiah get answered? Well, I guess you could say there was something of a provisional answer that God gave in terms of the future hope that Isaiah himself was given and spoke about in chapters 65 and 66. This God speaks of a future hope that the city of God would be a, a, would be created anew. Would become a a Jerusalem rejoicing that God would create a new heavens and a new earth. That there would be a new creation that God would usher in. Where instead of war there would be peace. Instead of conflict there would be joy and unity. and All the picture of that reality of things to come in a consummate Jerusalem of glory and of praise where God would be in their midst of course Isaiah never lived to see it but he could speak of it and hope for it but where do we see it? is it just future to us today? is it something we pine for and long for? that God would bring about a second exodus that history has not seen? well clearly it was not seen when the Jews came back from Babylonian captivity But you know how they came back from Babylon? It wasn't God appearing. It was God raising up a different empire. Empire. Remember, the Assyrians had their resettlement policies. They looked to relocate people so that they had no sense of identity any longer. The Babylonians said, no, no, that's not a good thing. We'll take them, especially the gifted ones, and we'll use them for the purposes of advancing the interests of our empire. I guess the Assyrians, they they kind of prefigured baseball they said the whole end of the thing is to go home the whole end of the thing is to send them back home that the great triumph would be of, of, of Persia would be that the people would feel a debt to the emperor they'd feel a debt to the Persians that now they are the ones who have sent them back home they'll go back to their homes and they'll pray for Persia in their own temples that was their, that was their theory and so when God brought the people back, at least that coming back under Ezra and Nehemiah, it was a decree of a king by the name of Cyrus. It's interesting how Isaiah calls him, he alone is called the anointed one. He's the Messiah in the book of, of Isaiah. Now, it, it uses the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to speak of the messenger that God would send, to speak of the Messianic figure, Uh, but there is something of the fact that God raised up Cyrus for that purpose of sending the nation back home, but let me tell you something he was not the Messiah (laughs) he was not the expected one who would be Israel's king he would not be the expected one who would bring the suffering servant, who would lay down his life for his people, be pierced for their iniquities and and crushed for their transgressions. He was not the one who would be the one who would defeat ultimately the true and greatest enemies of God's people. But there was no opening up of the Euphrates River to bring them across on dry land. There was no plagues that were brought upon the Persians. There There was nothing like that. There was absolutely nothing like that. So what happened? Isaiah's prayer never got answered? Well, actually, it got answered. In a majestic, wondrous, all-glorious manner. And for that we need to look at Mark's Gospel. I ask you to turn to the Gospel of Mark in the first chapter. But one of the things I think we learn about as we study the Gospels is that the first chapter is really key to everything that follows again I think you look at Matthew's gospel and how Matthew speaks of Jesus as son of David, son of Abraham and you see the centrality of Jesus' identity as the Davidic son, the Davidic heir to the throne that comes at us again and again and again as Jesus' royal kingship is set before us, his ushering in of God's kingdom uh, through his presence as Emmanuel God with us he brings in the promised eternal kingdom to fulfill the promises given to David. And the mark you also have in the first chapter, just as John, of course, John gives us in the prologue, all the things he's going to talk about later. He's going to talk about the Word made flesh who came into all amongst us. And we see, see His glory. He's going to talk about the glory of the Son. He's going to speak about Him coming as light and life into the world and so mark begins in a way that also it telegraphs everything that's going to come after that he opens up with the words the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god now mark for some reason he gets a he gets a reputation for speaking about jesus as if he were not what the church has confessed him to be Sometimes you hear theologians speak about the low Christology of Mark. That is, it's a Christology that speaks of Jesus' humanity. In a Bible college course in which they said, "Well, Matthew talks about Jesus as king, and John speaks about him as Son of God, and Luke speaks of him about him as a servant, and Mark speaks to him in terms about Jesus in terms of his humanity." And that's it. He's he's concerned about Jesus as the man. But I say to you, no. He's not presenting a different Jesus. There is no other Jesus to present than the one the church has always confessed as God and man in one person forever. And that's Mike's view of Jesus as well. And it's expressed right at the beginning. He is the Son of God. Now I know that there's a textual variation that some Ancient texts don't contain words of Son of God, but I think it, it belongs there. Certainly, that's where he ends the gospel, with a centurion seeing Jesus having died upon the cross, declaring, "This was the Son of God." This was the Son of God. It's a perfect bookend for the for the book, and it's an interesting thing that that centurion is the first human. To confess Jesus as the Son of God, that doesn't mean Jesus is not confessed as the Son of God in the book, except it's demons that are doing it. We know who you are. You're the Son of God. Is what the demons declare, and the Father certainly declares it. You are my Son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. We see that in uh, verse eleven, and in the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father declares his sonship as Son of God. The demons declare his sonship as son of God. As well as the centurion declaring his sonship as son of God. And he's son of God here as well. And then the fact is that when John Mark begins to tell us the story of Jesus, he begins with John the Baptist. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John appeared in verse 4. John appeared. John comes on the scene, but he doesn't come unexpected, he comes expected, as is written in Isaiah the prophet and what uh, Mark does is he takes actually two passages from the Old Testament one is Malachi 3.1 and the other is Isaiah 40, I believe it's verse 3, and he brings them together, he, he compresses both of those verses to say this is what John's ministry was and he comes as a messenger that God sets before his own face to prepare his way. He says, The Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. The expectation is that there will be a theophany. That there will be an appearance of God in the flesh. Or God in some fashion where it's apparent. It's God who has come. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. He goes on to say in Malachi. And then the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of who? Whose way is the messenger preparing? It's to prepare the way for Yahweh. It's to prepare the way for Israel's God. Mark's telegraphing right at the outset. Whenever he tells us about Jesus, take this. take note of this. He is the enfleshment of Israel's God. He is theophany. And then if you have any doubts that that's true, just read on, just read on we can go through really the entire gospel and see reference after reference after reference the things that Jesus did that the Old Testament tells us Yahweh did that the Old Testament says this is true of Yahweh and you know what? we see something here that does relate to Isaiah's prayer because when Mark relates to us the baptism of Jesus he does it a little bit differently than Matthew and Luke You see, this is a different word to describe what God does when when Jesus comes out of the water. It says, in those days, this is verse 9 of chapter 1 of Mark. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw what? He saw the heavens being torn open. Then we just say the heavens open. The heavens were rent open. There was a rending of the heavens. He uses this Greek word, skurzo. This kind of sounds like what it is just rip something in two. Skurzo. God ripped the heavens open. And he came down. He came down. Just as Isaiah prayed that you would rend the heavens and come down, that we would see this new exodus, that we would see this new deliverance, that we would see this new salvation that would put this exodus of Egypt into the memory. You know, you know we'll remember it happened, but man, something more wondrous, something more glorious, something more memorable... God will no longer be known as the God who brought us out of Egypt, but this God that did this new deliverance Amen. it's interesting that it says from the north <laughs> that deliver us from the from the powers of the north and in the north was significant because it's from the north that enemy armies would come to take to wage war against uh, the people in Israel, people in Judah See, to the east, which would be the natural direction from a lot of those places, there was all desert land, the the nation of Jordan today. And so, what militarily is significant is what today, even we hear of today, about the Golan Heights, which is in Syria. Because that's the place that there's natural passes that come down from the mountains into the Holy Land. And that's why Isaiah in chapter 9 speaks of. The tribes from the north in in Capernaum, Galilee of the Gentiles, Zebulun, Naphtali, those people have seen a great light. In the place where they formerly just saw enemy armies pouring in, they would see an invasion from heaven. They would see God coming in the person of His Son. God's bringing an invasion of His own presence and purpose and plan of salvation to bear Coming from Galilee, the Gentiles, where Jesus set up his headquarters, and Jesus comes to reveal God and reveal this great salvation. And then there's something even more interesting. I mean, it's all in this complex of ideas, is that when you come to the Mount of Transfiguration later on in the Gospel, you see the presence of Moses and of Elijah together with Jesus on that mountain, and they're, they're told, they were talking to one another some of the Gospels don't tell us what they were talking about I'm not sure if it's Mark I didn't look it up this morning, I should have but I did not, you do it look at Mark, look at Matthew one of those versions is going to tell you they spoke of the departure that he would accomplish at Jerusalem that's what usually the English translations say but you know what the word is it's exodus it's exodus what was Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus He was coming to bring a new exodus. A new deliverance. A new salvation. Bringing us from an eagle's wings unto God. Isaiah didn't know how it was going to happen but he knew it would. He didn't know in what way this new exodus would take place but he knew it would. And though there were people that maybe lived in that expectation and lived out their days with some measure of disappointment, they didn't actually see it with their eyes. They weren't like Simeon, who could say, let your servant depart in peace for my eyes have beheld your salvation. Not everybody gets to do that, but everybody gets to live in the light of the hope, the hope of a saving God. The hope of a God who comes in powerful redemption. Who comes to save his people from their sins. in the one who is the only savior of sinners. The only name given amongst men. Whereby we must be saved. Isaiah prayed for that. God fulfilled and answered his prayer in the coming of Jesus. But what about us? How do we appropriate such a prayer as this? Let me say a couple of things by way of application. Yeah, you know, we don't always know how God will fulfill his word, but God does fulfill his word in ways that the prophets of old had no clue about. Peter tells us they were searching what manner of time the spirit that was in them testified when they spoke of the coming of Christ or the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. They didn't have a clue about how God was going to fulfill His Word. But they knew one thing. God was going to fulfill His Word. God is the God who watches over His Word to perform it. And that applies to you and me, because we live in expectation of a second coming, do we not? We live in expectation of seeing the hand of God at work amongst the people that He will continue to redeem until Christ comes again, that the church will never fail, it will never perish, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We look at the church, particularly in the West, and we say, this seems like a failed enterprise. It seems like so many people just no longer take the gospel seriously. Now that's only because we don't know what we don't know. Because so many places in the world the gospel is flourishing. So many places in the world the gospel is flourishing. I've woman told you about that Brazilian guy that came here and asked if he could pray in the building. Now, I don't understand a word he was speaking in Portuguese, but he sat and he kneeled in the back back row there, and for an hour sustained, Portuguese poured out in prayer to God. And you hear about things that are happening in Brazil, and you say, well, if they pray like that, no wonder. No wonder. God's raising up mighty men of God. It was the same in a place like Brazil. And hence, you probably have more reformed and biblically based churches in parts of Brazil than you do in many parts of the Northeast or even many many parts of the South. No, find many really sound reformed churches. You probably can bear me witness of that in many parts of the South. But Brazil's abounding in those sorts of things. You see places like Zambia that's training men for ministry and sending out missionaries. We're just so provincial. We're just caught up with America. As if America is the beginning and ending of everything that exists in the world. Well, God is a God is concerned with the salvation of the nations. That's one of the great promises of Isaiah. It's just not that Israel will be the recipient of these promises. It's not just that Zion will be populated by Jews redeemed from bondage in, 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 um, in Babylon. But is that out from Zion, the word of God would go forth to the nations and the nations would flood into Zion to hear the law of the Lord. Let's be confident, child of God, that God does not speak his word in vain. He watches over his word to perform it and his word will be fulfilled. Every last letter of it. let me suggest along with a God who is committed to fulfill the word of his promise we live in the days of fulfillment we live in the days in which the prayer of Isaiah was fulfilled God has rent the heavens he has come down he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing to us our trespasses Everything that we know and believe as a people is based not only in the God who always fulfills the word of his promise in terms of the full authority of scripture, but the thing that makes Christianity unique amongst all the religions of the world as a a true religion and a saving religion is that we center all of our hopes in the fact that Christ is the one who comes in fulfillment, that Jesus has come and he's brought God's salvation. And so we're not on the losing side of world events. We're not to live our lives with distress and despair and depression. Look at how the world's going to, you know, wear in a handbasket. We're not to be an unconfident people just moaning and groaning about our troubles. We're to be a people filled with Holy Spirit brought genuine confidence in a saving God whose purposes will not fail whose church will not be routed in defeat we're not saying Lord where's your mighty works we see God's mighty works in Christ we don't say Lord where's your love to your people we see his love at the cross here in his love Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the repitiation for our sins. We read the intent of God's heart and the reality of God's power and the wisdom of God's ways in what He has already achieved for us in Christ. We live in the light of the greatness of His love, the display of His power, the fullness of His wisdom. that we are in Christ who is made of God unto us wisdom from God, sanctification righteousness and redemption we have all these things in our Lord and hence we say as Paul did, we are not defeated, we are in fact more than conquerors to him who loved us and folks that makes all the difference in the world how you approach life in this world whether you see it through the reality of the cross as you see it through the reality of God's redemptive plan and purpose fulfilled in Christ of moan and groan that you don't think all the things you've longed for and all the kingdoms that you've tried to build for yourself that that hasn't come about the way you wanted it it's not a question of again your concerns, it's a question of God's concerns it's a question of living in the light of God's concerns and God's fulfilled his own plan and purpose in his son and he's unleashing the power of his grace and salvation continually in the world, it never stops and again, just because we're just in the small neck of the woods, we're you know, it's the day of small things, that doesn't mean there's not large things happening elsewhere and so we're to continue to pray your kingdom come, why? because God says his kingdom will come he's promised it will be the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever we're not on the losing side of this folks and it's when we recognize this we'll fight in a different way we'll fight the fight of faith confidently you know I think of Israel often in terms of how they cowered before the giant Goliath they all hid none of them would go out to battle him then they were smart not to do it. They would have gotten killed. But God sent his own champion, a ruddy lad by the name of David, who came with faith in the promises of God, who understood, as tested and tried, in battles he did against bears and lions, that God is a God who could help him to defeat a, a giant. And he comes and he faces a figure that, I think in the... Palestinian son clothed in mail would have looked something like a serpent something like one of those copperheads that you you see and he came with his faith and he came with his slingshot and he came with his five smooth stones and he came as the anointed king the shepherd the anointed shepherd king from Bethlehem believe it or not And he came and he hurled that stone, where? He didn't hit him in the chest, no, he hit him in the head. And then cut off his head. And it really was this reality that here is the fulfillment of the ancient promise. Where God said, at least in terms of the the type of it, the typical fulfillment of the fact that he shall crush your head. The serpent's head was crushed. Goliath was crushed. The seed of the serpent was destroyed by the anointed shepherd king of Bethlehem. And it's from the victory that David won that day that you read in the text that the people didn't just say, okay, we can go and figure out what giants are in our lives and go and and, and battle them. And no, that's not the lesson. The lesson is we fight the seed of the serpent. We fight the wicked of the Philistines. We fight the people that defy our God and His grace and salvation, not from a place of looking for the victory, but a place of having the victory already won. The victory was already achieved, and Israel comes out from their hiding places and they begin to pursue the enemy, in the knowledge that their, their giant was gone. He was defeated. He's dead. Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. Christ has come. That through death, he would destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And then using language very reminiscent of the Exodus, and then would deliver all those who through fear of death were what? All their lifetime subject to slavery. Israel was subject to slavery. Why didn't they free themselves? The Father would have killed them, that's why. And he took God's coming in plagues. And in the death of the firstborn and destroying the armies at the sea that through death he delivered them who through fear of dying themselves were all their a lifetime subject to what? Slavery. That's what he did to Egypt in the old Exodus. What does God do in the new Exodus? He comes in the person of Jesus in the very same way. It's not uh, through the death of the firstborn or through the death although he is the firstborn son or the death of the armies of Pharaoh in the, in, in, in the, in the, in the sea. It's through the death of the firstborn son of God, that Jesus dies for our sins, the just one for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, and that through death he destroyed him that had the fear of death. At this point, not, not Pharaoh, he's long gone, but the devil, the power behind the throne. The power behind the throne. Jesus destroys. And what's the end of it? Was that we who live are no longer fearing death. No longer fearing destruction. No longer fearing damnation. No longer fearing eternal separation from the presence of God we're those who have been received by God and welcomed by God we're not slaves any longer we've been redeemed he delivered those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to slavery we're not God's free people and we wage the battle of the Christian life again from the victory already already achieved that we've received by his grace and again we're more than conquerors through him who loved us Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Bless God he has. Bless God. Isaiah's prayer has been fulfilled. That Christ came. The heaven sent Son of God. That he might bring us to God. That he might achieve that victory. That we would not be slaves any longer. Captives of anyone any longer. But God's free people. To worship and to war. In the power that his grace supplies. May God enable us, as redeemed Christians, believers in Jesus, to both worship and war in the power of this great salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this portion of your word. Again, it wouldn't be ordinarily the portion we would gravitate to, to see the gospel so clearly displayed, and yet it is. Your word makes it clear that Christ came as the heaven-sent Son of God that he came as the incarnation of Israel's deity, that he came to do what was needed to bring about a whole new exodus, a whole new salvation, in a real sense to put, in, to, put to to make pale in comparison that great deliverance from Egypt when we see the greater deliverance of the work of Christ. Help us to live in the light of the achievement of our redemption. Help us to live as free liberated men and women, boys and girls, to the praise and to the glory of your grace. Hear our prayers and bless your people we pray as we look to you in Jesus' name. amen. Amen. Amen.